The only way to secure the good things in this life and to get rid of the bad is for the day of the Lord to arrive. That's why every believer is repeatedly called to eagerly await and happily hasten the coming of the Lord. You're listening to the Holy Joys Sermon Podcast. Visit us at holyjoys.org to find more resources for a holy, happy church. You have probably never heard of David Allen Mather. He was born in 1851. He was an adventurous man from New England, Connecticut in particular. He was the great-grandson, though, of the well-known early Puritan preacher Cotton Mather. Perhaps you've heard of him. But as time would tell, David Mather didn't quite live up to his Christian heritage. Along the way of his travels across the untamed American frontier, David Mather acquired the nickname Mysterious Dave. His personality was taciturn. He rarely spoke. He even, even those who considered themselves his friend could not discern what he was thinking. There was rarely an expression on his face. Just the curling of, a thin, of his thin lips was considered by his friends to be a dramatic outburst. Whatever went on in David Mather's head was a perpetual mystery. But in the summer of 1878... The 27-year-old wanderer had found his way into the notorious Wild West town of Dodge City, Kansas, where the famous trio, Sheriff Bat Masterson, Deputy Wyatt Earp, and Deputy Bill Tillman resided. The last place Bill Tillman expected to find Mysterious Dave was at a revival meeting But that's exactly what happened at 9 o'clock that evening. A preacher who had been dubbed Salvation Sam had come to Dodge City and with a few male and female followers, and he had received permission from Luke Short to set up a one-night revival service in the Red Dog Saloon. Deputy Tillman was alone in Ford County Sheriff's Office when he heard shots ring out. He hurried down the street, and as he did, he heard, or he, he was told that whatever was happening was coming from inside the Red Dog Saloon on this night of revival. Entering the saloon, Deputy Tillman saw Salvation Sam and his followers cowering behind a lectern that stood before several rows of wooden benches. Mysterious Dave stood on one side, gun raised in his hand. Deputy Tillman didn't know which way this situation was going to go. But his future suddenly got much shorter when Mather turned the gun on him. And as usual, whatever was going on in Mysterious Dave's head could not be gleaned. Hoping that these were not his final words that he would ever utter, Deputy Tillman asked as calmly as he could, Dave, I need you to give me your gun. No response. Mather stared at him. In case the man was indeed mad, Deputy Tillman kept his voice low and calm as he walked slowly forward, assuring Mather that he wouldn't hurt him and that he wanted the gun, quote, so that you don't hurt anybody either. He could hear the preacher and the followers breathing heavily. Finally, Deputy Tillman stood before Mather and extended his hand, and after a few moments of quiet, the gun was relinquished. The others in the saloon stood up and spread out, still eyeing the unarmed Mather fearfully. 
The deputy sheriff looked over them and no one appeared to be injured. So he asked Salvation Sam to accompany him down to the sheriff's office to swear out a complaint against Mather. But the preacher pointed, pointed to the ceiling. He said, charges against this sinner have been made in heaven. God will punish him as he sees fit. Good enough, replied the deputy. Now to get mysterious Dave out of the saloon so they can go back to being church for the night. Once they were on the street, Mather finally spoke with surprising ardor. Hypocrites, he said. Wondering if there was more, Deputy Tillman waited patiently, not saying a word. And then in what seemed to him to be a Shakespearean soliloquy, Dave continued... That preacher asked them to come forward and confess their sins. And after they did, he said that they could go straight to heaven. And I figured that I would help them out with that opportunity right away before sinning again and ruining everything. But they didn't really want to go, so they're a bunch of hypocrites. (laughs) Now, this is a true story. Coming right out of the American West of the 19th century frontier, And it tells us one of the great mysteries of 19th century, but not just 19th, 20th, and 21st century religion. Despite all of the descriptions of hellfire and all of the candid calls to repentance and preparation for heaven that has been given in revival service over and over and over now for centuries, when it comes right down to it, the loudest and most fear-mongering preacher among them, including Salvation Sam on that late evening of of 1878, who bravely, by the way, bravely joined into the foray of Dodge City, yet just wasn't quite ready to make good on his own salvation. Was Mysterious Dave right? Is it hypocritical to call people to salvation to the salvation that heaven promises and yet fear for our lives that it might happen today. For two years, over two years, I have prepared to preach a series on heaven and hell. And over the next several Sundays, I want to share with you what some of the truths are that I've discovered from God's word. I have read well over 10,000, probably closer to 20,000 pages On this topic, I have dedicated myself to understanding what God's Word says about this very, very, not just important, but ultimate theme that should shape everything that we do and think and say. In preparation, I ask you to do a couple of things. First of all, I ask you to have your real Bible, all right? Let's do a real Bible check. Do you have your real Bibles today, all right? Lift them up. Phones don't count. Tablets don't count. Uh, Although, if that's all you have, you can use them. That's all right. But bring your real Bible with you each sermon. There will be sermon handouts as well. We'll try to make those available to those who are watching online also. And then secondly, I would ask that you, uh, that you listen to these, if for some reason you are to miss, that you listen to these in order, because for the most part, uh, they will build on previous sermons. Now, the approach that I'm taking in this series, as you can see on the slide, heaven and hell, myths and realities. This is an approach that one of my favorite Wesleyan Arminian theologians takes, Roger Olson, not on this topic, but in theology in general, he will state something that is a misunderstanding and then what the proper biblical understanding would be. 
And so this is the approach I'm taking to address popular misconceptions that I'm calling myths and offering a correct correction based on what the Bible actually says. And in keeping with this myth and reality approach to this topic of heaven and hell, in each sermon I want to share at least one myth and then the reality that we ought to believe. In each sermon, again, I want to show what God's Word says is reality. Now let me give give you some qualifications. First of all, I'm basing my study on God's Word. I haven't invested a single moment I've not read a single page of any of the accounts that are very popular of people's near-death experiences of heaven or hell. I'm not given any attention to that, and I won't give any attention through uh, this series. Some of those accounts, such as Kevin Malarkey's bestseller, entitled The Boy Who Came Back from Heaven, I have been to Goodwills all through central Indiana, and you can... Pretty much count on it. That book's going to be in there. Uh, that book seems to be everywhere. Written in 2000, published in 2010, a book about uh, Kevin's son, Alex, who was in a car accident in 2004. Again, Kevin Malarkey wrote this book about his son, Alex, and it turned out, of course, to be Malarkey. It was all made up. Now, I have no interest or time to debate or argue about anyone's personal experience or near-death situation. I've heard testimonies of those. You have heard them perhaps as well. But I want to say that God's word is the basis for my thinking and ought to be the basis of our thinking about this important topic of heaven and hell. I'm also using, I will preach from the English Standard Version, although I will even today make reference to the King James as well. And at times, perhaps the New Living Translation. Now second, in order to best understand God's word, I'm also going to, and I have for the last two plus years, I have looked into how other believers, Christians through history, have understood God's word. We call that sometimes historical theology or just tradition. What does tradition say about the topic? How does tradition understand scripture on these sometimes very challenging points? And also, I try to just use good sense and logic, understanding that God speaks in in human language and that God speaks consistently and logically. And so when Revelation 21, 26, for instance, says that the nations will walk in the light of God's glory, a reasonable understanding of that is to say that in the new heavens and the new earth, that there will be people group that the Bible calls nations. And we'll get to that. And then finally, I want to also, in this sermon series, do my best to describe the unspeakable joy that awaits the followers of Christ. It seems to me that the church today seems to be missing the happy anticipation and longing for heaven that has characterized Christians since Jesus' ascension. Myths about heaven and hell have dampened our eagerness for eternity and have raised some very important yet very anxious questions. Questions like, will most people go to hell? Is is hell really a place of burning fire? Where is heaven? Is it somewhere in outer space where God has prepared a place? Will heaven be boring? Will this earth be burned up in fire and disposed of? Will those who have never heard the gospel go to hell? 
What will our body be like in heaven? How old will I be in heaven? Will there be sex in heaven? A lot of questions. Will there be pets in heaven that people ask? There are dozens and dozens and dozens of questions. Many of them I'll address in this sermon series. Some I will await for a class that I hope to teach after the new year that will go into a little more depth in some of these questions. I also want to say that this is not a sermon series on the book of Revelation. Obviously, the book of Revelation has something to say about heaven and hell. And so I will give some attention to that, of course. But for the most part, I have, I have taught through the book of Revelation, verse by verse, at least four times. And I may do that sometime, but that's not what this series is. This series answers the questions and addresses the myths that people have believed about heaven and hell through Scripture. Now, in the end, my hope is that we will be able to overcome all of the myths, all of those things that would dampen our happy anticipation our eager awaiting, our longing, or as Peter says, the looking for and hastening of the day of the Lord. And that heaven will become a regular part of our table conversations for days and years to come until Christ comes. I hope that as believers we'll be able to, that we will be able to imagine together what it means to live in a world without sin. That we will begin to imagine rightly all that God has in store for us as best we can tell from his revelation. So let me give you these objectives. These are uh, what I hope to accomplish through these next uh, 12 to 15 weeks as we talk about and read about in scripture this topic of heaven and hell. Number one, I would like to foster within each one of us a happy anticipation of heaven. A joy that heaven is coming to the point that we would be able to testify with the Apostle John as he wraps up all of Scripture and says, even so, Lord, come quickly. And not like Salvation Sam, who preaches a message but isn't quite ready to make it a reality today. Second, I want to motivate us to live holy, H-O-L-Y, holy, and W-H-O-L-L-Y, for heaven's sake. We live each day for heaven's sake. Third, to overcome myths that have dampened or may even dampen today our joy, our eager awaiting, our longing for and hastening for heaven. I want to overcome those myths. I believe the scripture gives us every reason as believers to hope and long that Jesus might come today. Fourth, to offer hope that every sinner may be saved. Our world needs hope. And in the book that I will make reference to today, First Peter, it's a major theme, the theme of hope in the letter of First Peter. And then finally, I want to warn of the real possibility of eternal hell. Now, in this series of 13, 14, or 15 sermons, we'll see how long it takes. Most of those sermons are on heaven. I have perhaps three on the topic of hell, which is important. We need to address that. But for the most part, I'm giving attention where 
Scripture gives attention, and also recognizing that I am speaking to the church as well. But let's begin. Let's begin with what I call a heaven-can-wait attitude. Now, N.T. Wright, the British theologian, describes today's Christians as, quote, all dressed up and nowhere to go. And it seems to me that just about the only time that heaven ever comes to mind is when earth begins to seem more like hell. When tragedy strikes, when natural disasters hit, when loved ones die, when relationships are broken, when depression attacks, uh, attacks us. And like Bob Dylan, you feel like knocking on heaven's door. Believing that whatever heaven is, it has to be better than this. Otherwise, people, and I mean especially Christians, are quite content not to bother with heaven. For most Christians who are living out a healthy and comfortable life, heaven can wait. Let me give you some examples from popular culture. In 1996, the movie entitled Michael, starring John Travolta, features the angel Michael, who is permitted in this plot one more visit to earth before returning to heaven forever. The message of the movie is that earth is filled with all of the carnal pleasures, fun, and frivolity that one could possibly desire, while heaven, on the other hand, is austere, ethereal, cold, passionless, and quite frankly, boring. In short, a heaven void of pleasure, of all the best pleasures we can imagine in this earth, is a heaven that can wait. Now Mark Twain, writing in 1909, in fact it was his last letter, it was actually published after his death, he said this, he said, there is no humor in heaven, man has imagined a heaven and has left entirely out of it the supremest of all his delights. His heaven has not a single feature in it that he actually values. What's Mark Twain say? What he is doing is he's actually referring to a, some Christian literature of his day that had so described heaven as such an austere place, uh, basically an eternal church service, where there, is no, there are no smiles. And they would actually see that. I've, I've read some of this literature. I've read some of the, the, the sermons from the era that there's no levity in heaven. No laughter, only scowls and austerity and that sort of thing. Nothing really beautiful. None of the, none of the pleasures that we would enjoy on this earth, whatever those pleasures are, we're going to be beyond those. We're, we're not going to have those. Whatever heaven is, it's not going to be a place filled with pleasure. And that's what you would capture from some of those sermons. And that's what Mark Twain is saying. Now let me give you another example of a heaven can wait attitude from popular culture again. And again, popular culture, I understand there's a difference between that, hopefully, between what we hear from songs or see in movies and from what we read in scripture or hear preached. And yet, very often, as in the case of Mark Twain, they're simply reflecting what has become popular understanding in Christian religion. This one comes from the old country song. I should have had the guys cue it up, but... I didn't. It goes this way. It's by Joe Diffie. He sings, well, I ain't afraid of dying. It's the thought of being dead. I want to go on being me when my eulogy's been read. Don't spread out my ashes out to sea. Don't lay me down to rest. You can put my mind at ease if you fill my last request. And some of you know the words. 
Prop me up beside the jukebox when I die. Lord, I want to go to heaven, but I don't want to go tonight. The context, of course, of the song is, here's a country singer who wants to go on enjoying his music, drinking beer, and doing whatever else he did. And astonishingly, I have actually heard preachers on more than one occasion quote that, the last two lines of that song, Lord, I want to go to heaven, but I don't want to go tonight, from the pulpit. What Joe Diffie is saying is just what Salvation Sam wouldn't say, but acted out. Now take the culturally iconic Michael Jackson, who sings a song about heaven waiting, but for a different reason. He's afraid that heaven will be a place without romance. And so he sings, tell the angels, no, I don't want to leave my baby alone. I don't want nobody else to hold you. That's a chance I'll take. Baby, I'll stay. Heaven can wait. There are dozens of other popular tunes that identify all sorts of reasons for heaven waiting. I've spent much time going through popular songs and poems and, and, and songs and listening and, and trying to capture what is the understanding of heaven and hell in our world today. All sorts of reasons for why heaven can wait. Food, fast cars, fame, fortune, fermented drinks, fornication, all of those are reasons why people in their songs say that heaven can wait. Whatever awaits in heaven, they say, it surely can't be this much fun. Add to this that Christians are adding to the confusion by suggesting any number of reasons why heaven can wait. That's no wonder fairy tale visions of heaven are the norm now. When you lose sight of the reality, you just reimagine it as a place where you are. But here's the crux of the matter. If we lose sight of heaven, according to Peter, if we lose sight of heaven, we lose sight of the motivation for going there. Simply put, many Christians today are weak in hope. Our vision of heaven is just not that appealing anymore. Have Christians become too comfortable in this life to be serious witnesses for heaven? Philosopher and theologian Jerry Walls, also a Wesleyan Arminian, he writes this. He says, we desperately, get this, we desperately need to recover the moral, we'll get there in a second. We desperately need to recover the moral motivation that only heaven can provide. You see that on your sermon handout. We desperately need to recover the moral motivation that only heaven, not hell, only heaven can provide. Here's the first myth. The first myth is this, that heaven is not so great that it cannot wait. Now, I would endeavor to say that perhaps every single one of us, maybe you haven't said it, maybe you haven't verbalized it, but at some time or another, maybe even this very day, you have told yourself or you have told someone or you have thought, you know, I want to go to heaven, but not today. If you're honest with yourself. It's a myth that there would be any reason that would... Make heaven not so great that it cannot wait. 
To the contrary, the Bible gives us ample reason to remove all doubts, all fears, all uncertainties about eternity. In fact, we'll see next week in particular that the Bible repeatedly calls Christians to an eager and joyful anticipation of heaven as our primary motivation for living holy in this life. The reason I want to live to please Christ is because I want him to come and I want him to come today. Now, I have to say, I, God has been working on me because I have not been accustomed to living that way, to thinking that way, to thinking, Lord, I really do want you to come today because I have generally been in the mindset of, I look forward to the day when Christ comes, but I really don't, I really hope it's not today. We're not people of wishful thinking or half hope. We are gospel people, people who believe that the gospel is such good news that there ought to be nothing that dampens our happy anticipation of heaven. If your gospel cannot give you a hope and even a desire that it would come today, that heaven would come today, then your gospel is not good enough news. Yet I realize that there are many reasons why even the most pious saint may waver in our eagerness for heaven. I think of the 4th century church father, Gregory of Nyssa, when he captured our sense of fear in these words. And I don't know if I have them. Yes, I do right here. Gregory of Nyssa, 4th century church father. He says this, and I think he explains it very well. He says, when, when we see those who are dying, we don't easily accept that sight. And when death approaches it, something, you know, something within us wants to flee from it. As much as we are able, because, get this, because all human exertion is directed toward this one purpose, that we may remain in life. And that's true. Everything within us wants to live life and live it fully. Live, we, we have a sense that God has given life and he has given it for, for good reasons and even pleasurable reasons. And we want that. We want life. And that's why death is fearful and why we don't want to die today. The chief reason we want to delay death is because everything in the core of our being wants to remain in life. But this is where we miss the reality of heaven. Heaven is more real and more alive than anything we can experience in this life. That's hard for us to grasp. But can I tell you something? Whatever heaven is, it's more real and more alive than what you and I... You, you, you all realize that we are dying as, as I speak right now. Every single one of us, just you know, cell by cell, we are dying. Heaven is a place where there is no death. There is life more abundant than what you and I have ever experienced. Here's the reality. The reality is that heaven is so great that we can eagerly await. We ought to eagerly await. Now, there are two concepts in Peter's letters that I want us to understand to reach this conclusion. They are in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11, first of all, and that's where I'm going to make some comments today. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11, he says this. I have it in the English Standard, and I also have it here in the King James. He says, Behold, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. There are two things happening here. We'll take a look at that in a moment. In the King James, 
It translates it this way. Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims. Strangers and pilgrims. Abstain from fleshly lusts. That's just desires of any sort that would draw our attention away from eternity. Which war against the soul. Today we're going to examine this scripture. As next week we'll examine another scripture. Let me just read it to you very quickly. It's from 2 Peter chapter 3 verses 11 through 13. It goes like this. It says, what sort of people ought you to be waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of the Lord? Because we are eagerly awaiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. That's going to be the overarching theme of this whole series. And we'll look at that next week in particular. But let's look at this phrase. Pilgrims and strangers. We are pilgrims and strangers. I love to travel. There's no experience like for me like, like the 30,000 plus foot perspective from the perch, my perch in an airplane and seeing the layout of the land. I love traveling to a new place. I love to see the new sites. I love to learn the history of a new place, meet the people, eat the local food, see how the community works and how all the pieces fit together. But after traveling for a week or two, after experiencing all of the beauty and all the, the, the awe and just the, the wonder of the world out there, my heart starts longing to return home. It does. And home for me is Frankfort, Indiana. That's, it's just where, it's where I am. It's where my family is. There's something deep within our soul that is like a compass. It's suddenly, it suddenly turns us, points us, orients us toward home as if we can't get there fast enough. It's called homesickness. You've ever had it? Homesickness. Sometimes you get it you know, at Christmas or certain times of the year. But this is the exact feeling and longing that the biblical authors use to describe the Christian experience. Here in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11, the apostle paints the Christian life as a pilgrimage, a sojourn. We're foreigners traveling through a place that's not ours. This is a foreign land. It's a land that's not our home, a nation that's not our family, a culture that's not our norm, a language that's not our words. In fact, Peter warns us not to ignore this image impulse that we call homesickness, to recognize that we are strangers and pilgrims. Wherever we find ourselves, under no circumstances is the believer to forget who we are, where we belong, where we're going. Now, homesickness, by the way, is a good thing. It's a good thing. I think of uh, you know, Kayla, who's down at Hope Sound, and Micah will be going to Cincinnati here shortly for college. And I remember those days, and you, you experienced some homesickness. I hope, I hope my daughter has some homesickness. I hope she, she wants to come back home for uh, you know, as soon as she can. It's because within our heart, there's, there's a place called home. And there are people to whom we, are, we belong. That's why emotions rage in the airport when our plane is delayed or canceled. You ever been there? That's why any detour on our way, it's just out of the question. That's why we only take the scenic route when we're going somewhere, not when we're coming back. All eyes are on one place when it's time to return and there's nothing else worth seeing. 
philosopher Peter Kreeft, he says this. He says, when you find in your heart, when you find in your heart, and your heart is not, what you find in your heart is not heaven, but a picture of heaven, a silhouette of heaven, a womb-like emptiness crying to be filled, homesickness. Do you feel that? Do you feel that in your Christian experience? Do you feel longing? Lord, I, I, I'm not home yet. I'm just a stranger and a pilgrim in this world. But the longer it takes to get home, the easier it is to resign ourselves to lesser expectations. The journey becomes long. Our minds begin to wander. Our ears become accustomed to hearing a different language. Our eyes become accustomed to different sights. Our tongues to different tastes. And soon, home seems very, very far away. We begin to relax into a new norm. A new culture, a new language. Resigned to the fact that, well, maybe we're just, we're just going to be here for the long haul. What was at one time so foreign to us suddenly becomes sort of our home. Maybe we can just stay a little longer. Maybe, in fact, we just want to stay a little longer. Peter's words are carefully selected as a warning to us. That is, if we are not vigilant, if we don't keep our heart on home, home itself will become foreign. That is, if we do not maintain or long for the coming of the day of the Lord, the coming of heaven, soon we will adopt an attitude that heaven can wait. Each year in the city of Jerusalem, or actually throughout the world outside of the city of Jerusalem, Orthodox Jews, they understand the longing of the heart as Orthodox Jews approach uh, their new year of Passover, those who, for whatever reason, are away from Jerusalem and celebrating, they, they always end their celebration with a solemn reminder. They always say, you may have heard it. They'll say to one another, next year in Jerusalem. Next year in Jerusalem. You see, for a Jew, Passover isn't really Passover unless you're celebrating it in the holy city. Being away from Jerusalem on Passover to, is to a Jew what being away f- from home at Christmas is for the Christian. Every sentimental child of Christmas wants to go home, if only in their dreams. Strangers and pilgrims dream about home. That's what they do. We must not read over this way of addressing believers in First Peter as just incidental. It's core to who we are. Peter is writing to a church. He is writing to believers who may have just gotten a little too comfortable in this place. And he is saying, don't forget, you are strangers and pilgrims in this earth. Peter, inspired by God, calls us never to forget who we are. This is not where we belong. Augustine said it this way. He said, men who live by faith look forward to the blessings which are promised as eternal and life to come. And such men make use of earthly and temporal things like pilgrims. They are not captivated by them, nor are they deflected by them from their progress towards God. The problem with the church today, at least in America, is that we have found, is that we have found or treated our homesickness with all sorts of temporal comforts. When we hear conversation in the church today, you would think there's no stranger place than heaven. 
Christians nearing the airport of of eternity are thrilled to see the words delayed or even canceled next to the announcement of their flight home. This is what I'm calling a heaven can wait attitude. And it's one of the greatest myths that that fills the minds of Christians today. It is a myth that there is something about this life that's so precious precious that should cause us to wish for heaven's uh, delay and heaven's coming. Or that there is something missing from heaven that is so needed for us that we would rather stay here. Just Lord, just leave us. Let, Let us stay put for just a while longer. Now, I'm not suggesting for a moment that God expects us to wish to be separated from our loved ones or to be separated from any of the good pleasures that he has afforded us in this life. Rather, I'll show next week that the prevailing attitude among Christians since the ascension of Christ has been a happy anticipation for the coming of Christ. The only way to secure the good things in this life and to get rid of the bad is for the day of the Lord to arrive. That's why every believer is repeatedly called to eagerly await and happily hasten the coming of the Lord. Now, what is the real source of this deception? It shouldn't make us wonder, or we shouldn't wonder where, we, uh, where the ultimate source of this heaven can wait attitude comes. The idea that heaven is so bad or so boring that we actually wish for its delay is, of course, based on a lie. And millions of Christians today have believed a lie. And all those lies come from the father of lies. No one is more delighted in the prevalence of a heaven-can-wait attitude than the champion of lies himself, Satan. The longer heaven waits, the more havoc he can wreak. Randy Alcorn, who wrote a book on heaven, says this. He says, Satan need not convince us that heaven doesn't exist. He needs only to convince us that heaven is a place of boring, unearthly existence. And if we believe that lie, we'll be robbed of our joy and anticipation. This leads us to another attitude that's commonly found today. If the first one is a wish for our journey to heaven to be delayed, the second one is that it would be canceled altogether. Studies tell us that heaven is something that most people want to believe, but not hell. Not so much. Polls on the afterlife consistently show that the general populace in our country counts on the existence of heaven, but often wagers against the reality of hell. Belief in heaven is rising, while affirmation of hell remains steady or is slightly decreasing. Occasionally, a skeptic like the Harvard theologian Gordon Kaufman will bet against both, When he wrote in his 1989 Newsweek article, I don't think there can be any future for heaven and hell. Interestingly, Jerry Walls points out in his book, he says, just two years later, cover story for U.S. News and World Report announces, quote, hell's sober comeback. Belief in heaven and hell is one thing. Preparation is quite another. This is apparent in the number of books that have been written in recent years. Books have been written in a genre, and there's actually a genre, actually now called heavenly tourism. It's a genre, heavenly tourism. Again, earlier I referenced Kevin Malarkey's bestseller, 
Top the bestseller, USA Today's bestseller list. Another one called Proof of Heaven and Neurosurgeon's Journey into the Afterlife. It topped out at number four. A book to heaven and back. A doctor's extraordinary account of her death, heaven, angels, and life. Hit number 14. And on and on and on. Bestsellers all the time. Um, this this heavenly, uh, heavenly tourism genre that has caught on. People are fascinated by that. Whatever sorts of trips these people took, none of their accounts proves that people are thinking rationally or biblically about the afterlife. Jerry Walls describes this fascination of heavenly tourism as, quote, the same sort of fascination that some have with UFOs, ghost stories, and vampire romance novels. And that's really follows suit. The important question for Christians, though, isn't whether people believe in the afterlife, but whether people believe rightly about the afterlife. There are all sorts, and that's our question. There are all sorts of fairy tale visions about what the afterlife looks like, from white robed saints sitting on clouds of glory to beer drinking buddies at an infernal tailgate party. Exactly what heaven and hell are remains for us to see in Scripture. But the fact of heaven and hell must be at the forefront of our mind. And so, I conclude with these four ways that we can overcome a heaven can wait attitude. Number one, identify within yourself. Ask yourself. Some of you may even be able to remember not so long ago when you said something or at least thought something of, yeah, I want to go to heaven, but I don't want to go tonight. But ask yourself, identify, write it down if you have to. Why would, why would you or why would someone think or act like heaven can wait? Why? Just, just identify those reasons, all right? And there are all kinds of reasons. I've heard many of them, and I'll address many of them. For instance, one very common one is I have loved ones who aren't ready for the return of Christ. Well, that's... That's a, good, that's a good thing to think about, right? I believe Scripture gives us reason that even in light of that, we have reason to long for and hope and hasten the coming of Christ. Scripture gives us reason. Number two, discover in Scripture that heaven is worth eagerly awaiting. That there is good reason that all of the biblical writers in the New Testament and in the early church longed for Christ to return today. They longed for Christ to return today, for heaven to come today. Do you not think that they had some of the same thoughts that you and I have? Oh, what about my loved one? Or what about this? What about that? Of course they did. And yet none of that dampened their passion for Jesus to come back today. Why so? The reason is because they knew some things that we've forgotten today. And Lord willing, we're going to look at those. Number three. One way to get rid of the heaven can wait attitude. Another way is to think and talk truthfully about heaven. To get rid of the songs that, <laughs> that, that proliferate myths. To uh, and I'll go into some of those songs next week. Uh, to to 
maybe even change some of our language, the way we think about heaven. You know, all this talk about, uh, and in fact, actually, this whole study came, began for me uh, over two years ago when I was sitting in the office of, of a professional uh, who just that night had, had spent the evening with a, a dear friend and their daughter had, had died from, uh, and some people would call it suicide, it wasn't suicide, but had died from not taking care of herself. And tragic. And they stood around, and she was saying, you know, we, we stood around, and, and she's not a believer, by the way, this person. And she said the pastor was there and, uh, and was talking about how whatever the girl's name was is, is, is an angel and is, is on the clouds of heaven. And, and this very fairy tellish vision of heaven. And she said, I just, she said, I, just I, don't, I don't know what I think about that. And I said, you know what, you're right for questioning that kind of vision of heaven. Because that's not the vision the Bible gives us of what heaven is. You're right for being a little skeptical about whether or not you want to go sit on a cloud in the sky. Right? Yeah, I, I don't want to. Think and talk truthfully about heaven. Right? And then... Take seriously, take seriously God's willingness to save all sinners. For Jesus tells us he came to die for sinners. Paul tells us in 1 Timothy 2.4 that God desires all to be saved. Peter tells us in his second letter, letter that God is not willing that anyone should perish. Take seriously God's willingness to save all sin. Thank you for listening to the Holy Joy Sermon Podcast. Our labors for a holy, happy church are supported by generous listeners like you. Please pray about partnering with us at holyjoys.org forward slash donate.